going to talk a little bit about the anthology and the motivations behind that. Um, and in amongst that, I'll be introducing Valeria and Liana's work. Um, then we'll hear readings from them uh, before going into a sort of discussion about the book's concerns. Um, so I find it difficult to get excited about anything in art, in writing, unless it effectively constitutes some form of attack on the status quo. And when I segued into uh, studying and researching translation after years of uh, looking um, at literature, I sort of realised that I found the most antagonistic, critical uh, and compositional mode um, that I'd encountered up until then. Um, so the book, uh, basically constitutes um, the last four years of my research into contemporary poetry translation. And uh, the aim of the book is to, I guess, broaden and elucidate ideas around translation for all kinds of readers. So those familiar with translation theory and those uh, to whom it's an entirely new idea. And what I really wanted to emphasize were the political dimensions of translation and translation also as a subjective process, um, one that reflects political movements. And here in my notes, I've got Reed Basner and the Fervor quote, which is what Harry did <laughs> in his introduction to me. So you've already heard that. But effectively, um, it's this idea of translation as a manipulative act uh, that I want to put forward. Um, both on a sort of uh, macro and micro level. So at the level of selection, obviously the translator has to find something to translate um, and then that is brought to editors and publishers and so what reaches us in translation has already been through sort of several processes. Um, and then on the micro level, of course, there's how the translator chooses to translate any given text, what decisions go into how they bring that into English. Um, and I think this is important because thinking about translation causes us to think about foreign literature and translation and how it's represented and how it's rendered for us English language readers. And the anthology also, I guess, constitutes a broader redress to UK literary culture and sort of anthology format. Um, so instead of one-off translations of individual poems, which is what I'm used to seeing, uh, this book contains 29 extended excerpts from translation projects. Um, so it's this idea of presenting the translations as processes rather than products. Um, also, instead of presenting uh, translations from a small handful of Western European countries, um, we've tried to be a bit broader than that. So we've got source texts. Uh, the translations from Korean, Vietnamese, Pashtun, Greek, Slovenian, Japanese, um, and also some endangered languages, so Catalan and Galician. Um, male writers and translators represent about a third of the book's contributors, so again, that's a sort of conversion of the ratio that we're used to seeing. And each translation begins with a note um, that I've written, which foregrounds the translator and her process. Because um, I think really key for me in, in generating thoughts about translation and in sort of thinking ahead to translation's future health, literary translation's future, future health, is 
rendering the translator uh, visible and sort of challenging this pervasive idea of the translator as a sort of neutral uh, person or you know just a sort of siphon through which the foreign text passes and appears in English. Um, the source texts are also included and rather than being at the back of the book or sort of altogether excluded, they've been placed at the very centre of the book in a different paper stock so that they're highly visible. Um, Ulyana Wolf, who we'll be hearing from shortly, is one of the anthology's contributors and she is a German poet and translator, though her work is inherently multilingual, um, which I understand as an attempt to disrupt monolingual spaces um, and to destabilize essentialist notions of language altogether. Um, the work that's included in the book uh, is an English language translation by the poet Sophie Sater. Um, and so this translation of Uliana's text is accepted from a chapbook called I Mean I Dislike the Fate That I Was Made to Wear. And I think Sophie's translation um, can be more uh, accurately deemed a response to Uliana's work in the sense that just as Uliana's work is multilingual and self-reflexive and self-examining of this language um, and always and often sort of turning in and outwards and back on itself, so too is Sophie's translation of it. In her translators afterwards, Sophie writes that her translations do not attempt a pure or perfect congruence and this is because they take their cue from the source text um, from Uliana's work whose central concern is languages and borders and the sites of friction, ambiguity, and pain confusion that are established in those places. Um, she's also looking at the reductive effect of borders and other constructs on our identity and the terms pertaining to those identities. Um, so today I think we'll be hearing a bit from the work included in the book, but also from a new collaboration between Sophie and Liliana. Um, Valeria's work is not included in the book, um, but I've been fascinated with it ever since a friend who works at Granta Books in the UK sent me a copy of Cyborgs. Um, Valeria's past book books have been written in Spanish and her work is translated into English by Christina McSweeney. Um, actually, I'm to ask you, it's a new book that's written directly into English, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. So that's interesting, given the content. Um, the new book is called Tell Me How It Ends, and that just came out a few days ago, didn't it? Um, but I think it was, uh, you started writing it in 2014, and from what I understand, it was prompted by the upsurge in child refugees into the US at that time. So Valeria started working as an interpreter at an immigration court here in New York City, where she helped children complete the immigration questionnaire getting answers from them in Spanish and then translating these into English for the purposes of the form. Um, and this is a quote from war correspondent John Lee Anderson's short introduction to the book. He says, uh, depending on those answers, the children might or might not be granted legal sanctuary of some sort, and thus a future in the United States. Luiselli soon realized it was impossible to fit the children's lives neatly into the boxes provided, observing. The children's stories are always shuffled, stuttered, always shattered beyond the repair of the narrative order. The problem with trying to tell their story is that it has no beginning, no middle, and no end. And this is, I guess, going off on a tangent somewhat, but it put me in mind of the words of uh, an incredible 
UK-based poet um, called Vani Capaldeo, um, who I've been listening to in a recent podcast, and who actually also has some work in the book. Um, she was discussing rape testimonies um, and how traumatic events offend any notion of a sort of shared reality or of segmented chronological progression. Um, and that, you know, paradoxically is the basis on which those stories are often discredited. Um, so that seems like an interesting connection. And then also what occurred to me while um, looking at the book today was the emotional labour and fatigue of interpreting. Um, I'd recently been to uh, a panel, I'd recently watched a panel discussion with female interpreters who work in the context of gender-based violence. And they were sort of talking about the emotional toll of every day, um, you know, working nine to five and interpreting uh, the testimonies of victims in the first person. Because when you're an interpreter, you're repeating in the first person rather than referring to, you know, the person who's speaking in the third person. So they're saying, I was hit in the face by my partner, you know, I was raped by my husband or my friend or whatever. Um, and there's also this sense that those statements repeated again and again, they sort of simultaneously gain and lose in significance. Um, and that seems an interesting facet of the book to me. Um, so I actually cite Valeria in my introduction to the book, um, and I'll read that now. Um, at this point, I'm sort of framing translation as resistance, as an attack on an aggressively anglophone culture, which is what we're operating in. And uh, Larry here is talking about sort of the channels of translation. So she says, I think the generation of poets in Mexico who started translating from English into Spanish. They started translating Joyce and T.S. Eliot and Langston Hughes and William Carlos Williams for the first time in the 1920s. They created journals of translation that were thought of as spaces in which to publish their generation from other tongues into Spanish. They were interested in translation and translation as a way of allowing another language and another tradition to influence their work, the work within their nation. Their contemporaries, however, T.S. Eliot, Pound, etc., never really translated their Latin American counterparts. So, as Valeria suggests there, literary translation has always been uh, an inequitable uh, exchange. Um, translated literature constitutes just a tiny percentage of all books published in English. Um, the famous figure that everyone cites is 3%. Um, I'm not exactly sure how accurate that is. Some people say it's probably a bit higher, others a bit lower, but what we do know is that in uh, other literary cultures, work translated from English into those languages is much, much higher. Um, definitely about 20%, but even more than that, sometimes 40%. Um, before we hear Valeria and uh, Uyana read, and we'll hear them in that order, I thought I'd just read uh, a text, a translation um, from someone in the book who can be here, and it's uh, Dong Lee Choi's translation of a Korean poet, Kim Hai Soon. Um, and these translations are incredible, but I also love what Dong Lee Choi says about translation in interviews and, um, well, anytime she's asked, really. She has a really sort of caustic and aggressive voice when it comes to translation. Uh, so she says, 
I won't go into detail about why this word and not that word because details are suffocating to me. My translation intent has nothing to do with personal growth, intellectual exercise, or cultural exchange, which implies an equal standing of some sort. South Korea and the US are not equal. I am not transnationally equal. My intent is to expose what a neo-colony is, what it does to its own, what it eats and shits. Kim Hyseen's poetry reveals all this, and this is why I translate my work. interpreting and simultaneously interpreting the, the testimonies 
of people who, who gave orders to, to, to kill and it would, at, at, some, at some point, become so unbearable that, that they could push this button and there would be a pause. People could go outside, breathe, we can pause a little bit and go back. But, um, well, those videos are, are, are some very, very brutal, sinister, but also very valuable testimonies of, of how also interpretation became, um, became the fundamental post World War communicating countries. Um, so this book, Tell Me How It, how it Ends, um, is, a, is, a, is an essay that I began writing in 2014. Well, no, I began taking notes in 2014, right after the, the so-called um, American immigration crisis, although it has been called Central American Refugee Crisis, it has had several names. Um, and I first heard about the so-called crisis when most people did. Um, lawyers knew about it uh, long before the rest of us did. It had migration to children arriving alone at the, at the American southern border um, was, a, was a phenomenon that had, had been going on for years. But in the summer of 2014, it exploded in the media because between October 2013 and that summer of 2014, uh, there had been a huge surge of children arriving. Suddenly, in just that period, there had been 80,000 80, children arriving alone the border. Imagine the number there. And after that, between that, um, that summer of 2014 and April of the next year, 2015, um, there were 120 kids detained at the border. Uh, now, these kids are fleeing from violence in, in the Northern Triangle, that is Honduras, um, Guatemala, and El Salvador. The violence that they flee from is um, mostly gang violence, Mara Santa Trucha gang, MS-13, and Barrio 18. Um, I'll be kind of schematic here, of course it's much more complicated than this, but they're fleeing those gangs which were in turn born and bred in LA in the 1970s and 80s. Um, they were born and bred in LA from Salvatoran communities, Honduran communities that had fled the civil war in, in El Salvador. The civil war in El Salvador, uh, again, it's very schematically, um, began when, a, when the military government went into power and began massacring the either left-wing groups or civilians, uh, just because so one-fifth one of the country eventually had to flee and find refuge in other countries. And um, well, guess, guess who paid uh, for the militarization of, of, of that government, um, the, the Reagan administration. Uh, so, when the disaster exploded and people started seeking refuge outside the U.S. said, okay, we'll, we'll take some of you. And, and they took this Salvatoran community in. And then that, uh, among that community, the, these two gangs sprouted within the context of LA gang culture. I won't go into 
into that anymore, but that's kind of the back, back, back story. What's happening today is that those kids, well, let me tell you one more thing. Those gangs members, some of them, were eventually deported. Um, and what happened through deportation, um, well, a lot of people were deported, not only the gang members, people, Salvatorians and Central Americans were deported. And what happened was that instead of eradicating a problem, the problem spread like a metastasis, like a cancer. And that gang, those gangs that were circumscribed, uh, became transnational armies almost, uh, now covering huge portions of the hemisphere, uh, the United States, um, uh, Mexico, in Mexico they've joined the, some of the drug cartels, and then of course back to Central America. So um, the kids that now flee in Honduras or Guatemala flee those gangs, and a lot of them end up in small towns in the U.S. Um, where there are more miles, uh, MS-13s. So it's like a cyclical nightmare that these kids just cannot escape. I work in a, I teach in a university in Long Island uh, in a town called Hempstead, um, which was the was the town where the, the very famous for, for, for very visible um, confrontation between the Bloods and Crips, for example. Now that town is full of Maras and the 13s, and the kids that arrive are back there. So I'm going to read just a little bit because I've given an introduction that's far too long. Uh, the last thing I'll say is I wrote this a shorter version of this originally in English for a journal here journal called Freemans. Um, then I was asked by my editors in Mexico to rewrite it in Spanish. And I agreed hesitantly because rewriting, self-translating oneself is, is, is not an easy thing. Um, I mean, basically, I didn't really agree. They gave me five tequilas, one after the other, and made me sign a napkin, which I agreed to rewrite this, but also like all the rest of the books that I dare write in English, and not in Spanish. And I think I'm a very naturalist uh, in that respect. I don't know. Um, so I did. And I'm actually really happy that I did, because when I wrote in Spanish, I had to, I had to open up another Pandora's box, which was the Mexican chapter of, of these kids and their journey. And the Mexican chapter is really hell. What happens to them in America is, is, is really um, cupcakes compared to what happens to them in Mexico. And so while writing in Spanish, I simply had to fight with another set of monsters, not the, not the border patrol, but the Mexican Mira. Um, and so this was in length. And then I retranslated, but with, with, with help, of major help. And uh, the first versions, in fact, were done by a young um, editor translator in my, in my publisher, uh, Lizzie Davis. She very carefully highlighted everything that I had added and then rendered it into the first English version and then I worked on top of that. So this is the result of so that back and forth. Um, okay. I'll read a little bit from the beginning and then maybe a little bit from um, from one of the interviews for kids. <clears throat> Why did you come to the United States? That's the first question on the intake questionnaire for unaccompanied child migrants. 
questionnaires used in the Federal Immigration Court in New York, where I started working as a volunteer interpreter in 2015. My task there is a simple one. I interview children following the intake questionnaire, and then translate their stories from Spanish into English. But nothing is ever that simple. I hear words spoken in the mouths of children, threaded in complex narratives. They are delivered with hesitance, sometimes distrust, always with fear. I have to transform them into written words, succinct sentences, and barren terms. The children's stories are always shuffled, stuttered, always shattered beyond the pair of narrative order. The problem with trying to tell their story is that it has no beginning, no middle, and no end. When the intake interview with a child is over, I meet with lawyers to deliver and explain my transcription and occasional notes. The lawyers then analyze the child's responses, trying to come up with options for a viable defense against a child's deportation and the potential relief he or she is likely to get. The next step is to find legal representation. Once an attorney has agreed to take on a case, the real legal battle begins. If the battle is won, the children will obtain some form of immigration relief, and if it's lost, they will receive a deportation order from the judge. I watch our own children sleep in the backseat of the car as we cross the George Washington Bridge into New Jersey. I glance back at them, now and then, in the co-pilot seat, my 10-year-old stepson visiting us from Mexico, and my five-year-old daughter. Behind the wheel, my husband concentrates on the road ahead. It is the summer of 2014. We are waiting for our green cards to either be granted or denied. And in the meantime, we decide to go on a family road trip. We will drive from Harlem, New York, to the town of Cochise, Arizona, near the U.S.-Mexico border. According to the slightly offensive parlance of U.S. immigration law, for the, free, for the three years or so that we had lived in New York, we had been non-resident aliens. That's a term used to describe anyone from outside the U.S. alien, whether or not they're residents. There are non-resident aliens, resident aliens, and even removable aliens that I know of. We wanted to become resident aliens, even though we knew what applying for green cards implied. The lawyers, the expenses, the many vaccinations and medical exams, the months of sustained uncertainty, the rather humiliating intermediate steps, such as having to wait for an advanced parole document in order to be able to leave the country and be paroled back in like a criminal, as well as legal prohibition against traveling abroad without losing immigration status before being granted advanced parole. Despite all that, we decided to apply. The green card application is nothing like the intake questionnaire for unaccompanied minors. When you apply for a green card, you have to answer things like, do you intend to practice polygamy? And are you a member of the Communist Party? And have you ever knowingly committed a crime of moral turpitude? And although nothing can or should be taken lightly when you're in the fragile situation of asking for permission to live in a country that's not your own, there is something almost innocent in the green card applications, preoccupations with, and visions of the future, and its possible threats. Polyamorous debauchery, communism, weak morals. The green, the green card questionnaire has a retro 
kind of candor, like the grainy Cold War film we watched on VHS. The intake questionnaire for undocumented children, on the other hand, reveals a colder, more cynical, and brutal reality. It reads as if it were written in high definition, and as you make your way down its 40 questions, it's impossible not to feel that the world has become a much more fucked up place than anyone could have ever imagined. Crayon in her right hand. 
immense cost as an adult mate, and she answers my questions one by one. She's a little shy, but tries to be clear and precise in her answers, delivering all of them with a big smile, toothless here and there. Why did you come to the United States? I don't know. How did you travel here? A man brought us. Coyote? No, a man. Was he nice to you? Yes, he was nice, I think. And where did you cross the border? I don't know. Texas? Arizona? Yes, Texas, Arizona. It's impossible to go on with the interview. So I asked the lawyers to make an exception and allow the mother to meet with us, at least for a while. Usually in court, the parents or older family members that, that sponsor the kids, meaning that, that act as custodians of the kids here, even if they're not their parents, are not allowed to be in a, in a screening because their presence can, can modify the kids' answers. Um, so they're usually not allowed to be in screenings, but when the kids are really small, there's just no other way. And sometimes there are kids in court as young as two years old. So of course, in that situation, there's always parents or family. Um, I realized it's impossible to go on with an interview, so I asked the lawyers to make an exception and allow the mother to meet with us, at least for a while. We go back to question one, and the mother responds for the girls, filling holes, explaining things, and also telling her own, own version of the story. When the younger of her daughters turned two, she decided to migrate north and left them in the care of their grandmother. She crossed two national borders with no documents. She wasn't detained by border patrol and managed to cross the desert with a group of people. After a few weeks, she arrived in Long Island, where she had a cousin. That's where she settled. Years passed, and the girls grew up. Years passed, and she remarried. She had another child. One day, she called her mother, the grandmother of the girls, and told her that the time had come. She had saved enough money to bring the girls over. I don't know how the grandmother responded to the news of her granddaughter's imminent departure, but she noted the instructions down carefully and later explained them to the two girls. In a few days, a man was going to come for them, a man who would help them get back to their mother. She told them that it would be a long trip, but that, she, that he would keep them safe. The man had taken many other girls from their village safely across the two borders to their mothers, and everything had gone well. So everything would go well this time too. The day before they left, their grandmother sewed a 10 digit telephone number on the collar of their dress. A dress each girl would wear throughout the entire trip. It was a 10 digit number the girls had not been able to memorize as hard as she tried to get them to. So she had decided to embroider it on their dresses and repeat over and over a single instruction. They should never take this dress off not even to sleep, and as soon as they reached America, as soon as they met the first American policeman, they were to show the inside of the dress's collar to him. He would then dial the number and let them speak to their mother. The rest would follow. The rest did follow. They made it to the border, were kept in custody in the Gileda or icebox for an indefinite time period. The girls said they didn't remember how many days, but said that they were colder in there than they had ever been before. After that, they went to a shelter, and a few weeks later, they were put on a plane and flown to JFK, where their mother, baby, baby brother, and stepfather were waiting for them. That's it, my daughter asks. That's it, I tell her. That's how it ends.
Yes, that's how it is. But of course it doesn't end there. That's just where it begins, with a court summons, the first notice to appear. Okay, I'll stop there. Um, I guess I should explain just quickly to, um, that there's cases uh, in courts that are very frustrating because um, if kids don't tell you that they are fleeing from specific circumstances such as persecution and um, uh, great levels of violence and neglect, they are actually then not eligible for asylum or visas similar to asylum. So in the case of these girls, uh, the frustration was that they, 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 they didn't have the language to, to tell their story and who knows what the story was. But if the story was, for example, that they're just fleeing uh, from Guatemala to, to join their mother and grow up with their mother, which is something that a child has a right to do, um, that that's just not enough. That's not enough for asylum. So, so well, that, that's the thing with the court, the case, the case court, uh, cases in court is that um, when you're translating, um, you are just a vehicle. Uh, you can't really modify the answers or even push the, the kids' answers to a specific um, end, right? So um, it's, a, it's a kind of very frustrating in between that you can't do anything and you can't, um, you can't, you can't make sure that their answers are good enough for asylum. Okay, I'll leave it there now. Thank you.
still hypnosis as, as a cure, uh, or as a therapy, really. Um, and they developed, Oya and her developed something called a talking cure. So, um, when there, if there was a symptom, and she had a lot of symptoms, um, he would try to engage her and uh, find a way to the root of the symptom by talking and associating. So she was credited with the use of the indigenous uh, analysis. Um, it all didn't really work, and she moved to Frankfurt after a while, and then her life really started because she met, had a more liberated uh, uh, Jewish sort of where she then started her work as a social worker and became uh, uh, someone who really worked on and helped and translated and traveled a lot, helping uh, girls who were trafficked uh, from, from the Ukraine mostly um, and sex trafficking um, and did a lot of social work and founded a, uh, a house for fallen girls. So this is Alice. One of the symptoms that she had was language confusion. She started to speak suddenly in tongues. And then for a while, she also completely could not speak German anymore, but only English for nine months. Uh, and, and no one understood her. And they had to get a guard, a warden who speaks not supposed to make English and very strange. So in my book, which sort of deals with translation, but also the failure of translation and multilinguality and sort of questioning the idea of what a mother tongue is and what this kind of belonging is and how it ties us to a nation, a state, um, a, a, maybe a system, you know, a, a medical system, uh, a patriarchy and all these things. Um, uh, Anna always sort of the central figure. And um, there's two analogs, analog and oranges, analog and flowers that are tied to her symptoms. And this symptom is, is she only ate oranges for a while, refused to eat or drink anything else. I, a native something or other girl, so lead a geistige Nahrung and she digested mit affektiver Athletik und Orangenpolitik. When it's time for oranges, as is kind of side, no time at all for nichts. I only eat oranges, at least they exist, if not much else is no things at all, not much. Petite little boats and strengthened skin, I suck on them for hours, keeps me busy, free run for the tongue, looking for thread between teeth, interlaced space, and rooms to own, not much. Oranges or existence all around, oranges or residence all around, with weighty curtains and rooms that step together, conspiring, brother, mother, daughter, and the wardress, daily session, that's how they planned it all, wall to wall, around my standstill arms. But oranges exist as transportation, orange buses, orange trains over cobble headstone pavement rattling through the ages. And on my bed, those glimmering signals, the peel, orange swinging segments, white skinned bridges, I lay them out for hours, keeps me going to Luba, while the wardress brings fresh water, fresh sheets, all the unemptied glasses, cups, daily a warding off for repair, nicht wahr? That's how they planned it all. Later then, ten rooms on each floor, servants galore, with bow and tie, marriage, and tea, marriage, and in the evening, a little riot, and tea. 
But when it's time for oranges, as his kindness out, night time at all, for thirst, for rasa, for being thus arranged. Because oranges are their own maneuvering material. Because trains, bridges, and little remind glitches keep me going on a laid. Go lack, go lack, used to her. Because oranges communicate through the ages. Oranges, or restricted residence, or around. Oranges, or rather limited vision, all around. Oranges, or it's like they're present, just trees and animals are at the end of the world. When it's time for oranges, as is time inside, no time at all for world endings, or headlock curtains, paper measures for sure. Because they are a center residence for life, for lack, for want, go, go, be good, but used to her. Go straight the chimney, why not, so that the doctor comes again, so that the doctor sees how the organs wander through the ages. That's what they figured, not that they wander and then go stray organs stuck in the body, the organs, lock the golden tracts and the good manner tracts and all the feminine tracts, all range of things. Because storage and organs, organs, because collect yourself and wander. Glimmering, bright, and lacking against orderly arrangement, against measures called to wall around my standstill warning. Only at first did I snap off the buttons from the covers and the cases. Then I dropped my cover, coherence, a show a ticket, loosen, loosen it, so to speak, set. Wanted to the cover, come on from under, come on loose what they all call paralysis, I call a tick, a ticking in oranges through the ages. Because I can hear it where I sit in my barracks, in the forest, in my Vienna asylum, in my tent on the Wintermarkt, where I suck it out for hours and for hours, what's lacking? Let the tongue run free, looking for grounds between teeth, rejection, residence, residenzpflicht, waiting rooms, keeps me beschäftigt. Because I not having work, no travel, only thought travel, through thought cuttings. While the wardress takes away the peel, there's sour glimmer all over my life. First line, I did not pretend, homestreit, because oranges are asylum and solid, geistic nourishment, glimmering. Because one ought to freely choose what one eats, right, or where one goes, packages, laced with marriage, biscuits, and tea, haven't you the faintest and of that a great deal. But brothers and dogs, they also exist, if you can stomach it as is the custom, stutter juice and wolf spoke in the sluice. When it's time for oranges, as is kind inside, no time at all for brothers who are allowed to go off to study, or for dogs on all fours, mind you, slobbering all over my tray, drinking out of my little cup, not your cup. Oh, long black tongue, why ich das nose. Sniffling outside to Huntu. Snap, yes, he drank sloppily from the little cup with the double tongue. Oh, but that's why they figured, right, that even a dog has more right to run free. But that oranges glimmer, that orange, that one can with an orange in existence derange and switch tracks, so as not to be slurped up by dog tongue, excusing more dog, excusing more doctor, can he not be taking himself away and take the warning of the water, the cups, and every wall they mount and round my little bed. You see, oranges solidarize. Solidarizina, those rounds of shame organs. I join the wanderings, I squeeze an outcomes, contrasting, orange in, orange in. I am native for something other girl. 
So either it goes to Gennaro and she digested with affectiva athletic or orange or poetic. Or as you say, I'm organ harming. Starting from or with an orange, all travels are possible. All ways of the voice that lead across it are good. Or as you say, I am Dry up in mid-speech, stuck, repeat, ah, ich habe Krämpfe in my calves, be my teeth, klappern. I, a native illness girl, eins, zwei, drei, vier, fünf, no, yes, namely German. But we'll try to give as well as a person. Between nine o'clock in the evening till one p.m. midnight. Absences. Which even with a strange feeling of beobachten können, time missing. But we'll try to give as well as a person. A windfall when I was circling around the oranges. Island, can, a glimmer, a glimpse. When I was circling around the oranges, who paid them? Who wrote them? Can 
about, which is the failure of translation in refugee situation, uh, and uh, one of the biggest failures, in a way, Anna or herself, I mean, historically, she um, she worked with those girls who who had experienced sexual and other violence, and she gave them a home, but she never ever once suggested that they do some kind of therapy. Mm -hmm. yeah. She was she was scarred by her experience with Moya. Um, and she uh, was uh, was against the idea of psychoanalysis or even therapy for the rest of her life. And a lot of her girls could have, or her girls, I mean, the girls that she, she gave a home to, could have used uh, counseling or therapy. Uh, uh, but um, she was sort of scarred by this initial long offset of psychoanalysis or of, of therapy. So that's sort of a failure right there. Um, and then another thing I'm thinking about, just associating in this in this sphere is the failure to contain what, what you just talked about in the body of the interpreter. Um, I read a fantastically strong novel by Shimona, um, what's her last name, uh, the continent second, a, West, a French West Bengali writer who wrote, who worked as a female translator in the asylum system as an interpreter and, um, and wrote a book called I read the German translation, so it's like slay the poor. I don't know what the French is. It's a phrase by Baudelaire uh, originally. And it hasn't been translated. I don't know why. It came out, it, 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 it's, a fiction, it's a novel, it fictionalizes a lot, but basically the narrator is a female translator who translates mostly for Indian men who despise her, and who would never look her in the eye and talk to her in their own culture in a way. So she's working with a very sexist, in the setup and experiences a lot of the violence uh, from the structure that she tried to escape, while at the same time trying to help them, right? And she goes completely bonkers and she, she uh, hits one of them a man uh, with the head with a wine bottle in the middle of the subway. Uh, so the whole book is written from her jail cell. And, and she collapses. And, uh, and when the book came out, she lost her job because the accounts were so horrific. The accounts not only of, of everything that can go wrong in the, in the, in the asylum system, but also <clears throat> of um, just the pure honesty with which she said that everyone lies. Everyone lies to have a story that fits. You know, those children that you talked about, they should have you know, lied. How can you as a translator exactly help them to have to lie? Whereas these are I mean, these kids are kids so they, they can't they, know they can't they can't figure out how to system it. By the way, Homeland Security uh, last week uh, released a memo saying that kids are abusing the system here. Uh, kind of accusing them of lying their way into cheating their way into asylum and so what we are which we should expect I think in the next month is uh, uh, an amendments to the law that protects these, these kinds of uh, asylum seekers. Yeah. Uh, so much work to do right now. Yeah. Are there any questions at this point? Yeah. No. This isn't exactly a question. Um, it's not exactly a question, it's more another side by side. Thing I noticed between Sophie's introduction and your, what you were saying about Anna Ong, because um, Freud and Boyer, when they're talking about hysteria, they also call it conversion disorder, which is essentially where something in the mind is repressed 
and then it gets translated or converted into a symptom in the body. And so hysteria itself is an act of translation. And early in Freud's career, he believed that the goal was to make the unconscious conscious. But then later he shifted from the idea that there was this original in the unconscious, sort of like you were talking about, which treated the translation, or the original, but actually to try to understand the process of translation. And that's really where the work is. And it reminds me of what you were talking about, um, it's sort of a way of resituating, looking at translation. So it's not a way of, you know, uh, accessing the original in another language, but it's something, it's a process in itself. Yeah. So it's new. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you so much for, for pointing that out uh, as a conversion disorder, conversation and conversion disorder. Um, and I feel like a lot of the pieces that you selected are exactly like you say, they are between actually occupying the space between languages, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and, and sort of mapping these these conversions and also mapping where the where, where, where the translation has not been finished, where the languages are just sort of coexist like like in, in Anna's you know, text or in the brain or in, in that sort of uh, translation act. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the whole thing was raising awareness of the translator, yeah, just completely altering the perception of the idea of the original text and the translation and the process that comes between that and sort of moving away from the idea that there's an essential yeah, piece of information that you're trying to access and that it's more about, yeah, the process in between those two points. Can I say something about that? I mean, I think it's a, it's a I think you also, you, you, you were speaking more in terms of psychology, um, but I think in terms of translation, uh, and going back to what, what Anna was originally saying about translation, and you, as, you, what you were saying as well, as being interested in the process and not the final product, um, I, I, I also very much I think, agree with you with um, this notion of the translator's invisibility and how translators get told that their work is good when it doesn't seem like a translation, which is kind of absurd, right? Yeah. Um, it's fluent, or it's elegant, or... You know, it doesn't sound translation. If it doesn't advertise itself as a translation, then it's a good thing, so it gets reviewed Exactly, well. it gets reviewed well, it, it, it gets domesticized, or how is that the term of using translation studies. And um, something that, that, sort of going back from this to your first question about of our own interests in translation. Um, I had the, the, the fortune uh, of having a very good translator into English um, for my first books, which were written in Spanish. This is Christina. Christina makes me, yeah, she's, she's just, I don't know her name, but she's, she's an absolute genius. She writes a lot. She she's, translation. she's a translator. Yeah. She never reveals Just it. translation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just, that, and that's what she would say. Yeah. No, I mean, just as an only and not both. Would she, though? Because I, I think I read something where I said that you sort of work, you were talking earlier about working on top of an English translation. Yeah. Is it the case that she translates and then you sort of strenuously edit? Well, well I, I was going to go there, yeah, exactly. So she translates, the, she, she translated all my books in Spanish from three up until now. And um, she, I give her a lot of freedom uh, because she's so inventive. Um, to to not be literal and to not be so loyal 
to the original to kind of like, I don't know, do whatever she wants with it. And then she gives me a lot of freedom to come into the text and use it as a kind of first draft of a manuscript that I then rewrite and edit and rewrite and edit and often ping pong with her and she kind of edits and it's a very collaborative process. Uh, so much so that in this in this last the last book that she translated of mine, the story of my teeth, uh, she came up with this. It's, it's it's a book with a lot of names of people, um, and I won't explain why right now. But she to she's very meticulous. So in order to for herself understand why there were so many names and what the relationships were, she made a kind of map of those names and wrote kind of bios to understand how who they were, who these people were, and how they connected to each other. Uh, a completely kind of schizophrenic man, but fantastic, you know, like a really uh, thorough, investigative um, process. And she showed it, she showed it to me one day, and I mean, I thought it was su such brilliant work that I, I, I asked my editors in English whether they could incorporate that as a chapter of the book, uh, playing against the idea that she should be invisible as a translator. So it's a chapter called uh, uh, Chronologics by Christine Maxfini. Um, and it's, it's, one of, uh, it's one of the best chapters of the book, I think, because it's like really, it's really short pieces connected to each other, and it reads beautifully. Um, and so I don't know, I, I, I very much think that translators should push to become more visible. Sometimes it's easy because collaboration is easy between two people like, that understand each other well. Yeah. Um, but but I, I don't know. There, there should yeah. be more collaboration. You can sometimes see more space of that in poetry, but it's interesting hearing you talk about how that might function in uh, you know the context of fiction, mm -hmm. and that it is possible. Um, it is completely possible. Yeah. Um, did you want to say a bit more about? That? I'm interested because we were sort of initially occupying this weird in between space when we were talking about kind of legal translation and, and interpreting, and then on the other hand, I talk about poetry translation, and it felt sort of unnatural to switch between the two, but I'm interested in hearing a bit more about your relationship with translation in a, in a literary context. Um, yeah, sure. I mean, first, um, um, our process is very similar to the one you described. I really I love the fact that you described it in fiction, which is really the first time I think I've ever done such a more poetic collaboration of uh, writing and rewriting. Uh, working with Sophie Saita is really uh, very wonderfully uh, a creative process because um, the interesting thing about Sophie Saita is that she is also a German native speaker, but uh, an English poet. So she's between languages in a way that I truly you know, I don't write in English, but uh, more she's in between languages more than a translator would be. And so she's also more interested in messing with languages mm -hmm. and, and messing up the space between them, which really works with my work, right? And um, so I, I, uh, she gives me a draft and she takes a lot of liberties and then I love her ideas and then I run with it or I go and sort of have my own ideas in English and, and sort of replay it. And it's, it's a similar space. Um, I, uh, I've translated almost as long as I've written poetry. Um, and uh, really, from the, the, I remember one of the first things that I did when I was a poet was also go to a translation workshop of German-Polish poetry, knowing no Polish. Um, and um, the, the, the idea that you can meet with the poet 
and then have the language facilitator and then work as a workshop situation to do what we call Nachdichten, which is a more poetic word word translation. It means to write poetry after this person, like after work or after some, uh, or in the way of this person. So this is uh, something that has a long tradition in Germany. Um, so that's the official term, like after writing. Yeah, after yeah, writing. Yeah, so exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Wonderful German compound term, Nachdichten. Um, and it's time, it's time, and it's so it's it's, it's time after as in the manner and after as in time. Right? So it's it's, it's um, both of these things. And so that uh, was an amazing project, and I liberated me to idea of uh, translation, but also translating and poetry sort of folding into each other because I think. My first translations were very free, you know, um, and, uh, and uh, very inspiring in a, in a general sense because then I went to Poland, I studied in Poland and I'm actually Polish for a while and um, my first book was about German-Polish relationship, very troubled relationship obviously, and, uh, and borders and, and shifting borders and languages. So since then, really, translation has always been part of my work. Yeah. Not just as a translator, but folded back into the writing. And yeah. For those initial translations, would you call them versions? Yes. Use that yes. Term. Yeah. What do you think of that term? I've got a sort of fraught relationship with it, where I can see the sort of utility of it, but also it accounts for a lot of work in translation in the UK that I find you know, just horrendously dull and derivative. <laughs> Something By like Paul Patterson's Rilke. By translators. Yeah. 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 No, I, I think the version is unfortunately, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's more of a male gesture to yes. translate the versions. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, like, you know, in between your books, and you use another book, which I made. Oh, yeah. you know, And you get to attach your names. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's interesting. Like to, just to, to, like, to add a little footnote to that, the, the, like, the emblematic poem, uh, not poem, sorry, essay on translation by the emblematic uh, Mexican phallus. <laughs> like, okay, that's a great, great poet. Um, but uh, a great big palace as well. Um, I mean, not that I ever had such <laughs> myself. Um, he, his, his, his essay is called Versions and Diversions. <laughs> so yeah, it, it is precisely a kind of riff on this, on the same idea. Okay, we pass. Some no, I, I, I really put too much attention on yes. it. <laughs> but I mean, if you think of versions as, um, if you think of what, what are so-called originals as versions, um, then it's, I think that it's, you can play around more um, with that. I certainly think of my, every stage of my writing as a version. Um, and my any book that I end up publishing um, has gone through so many versions. Not I don't only mean in like first draft, second draft, kind of thing, but but they they are uh, published um, versions really of, of, of something and like for example the, the, the story of my teeth that I was talking about originally was a, a fictional account inside an art catalogue of um, 
of the putting together of an exhibition in the Humex factory, uh, the Humex gallery, which is next to the Humex factory in Mexico. So I had sent a bunch of installments, weekly installments, to, to workers in the juice factory. Uh, and I asked them, 12, 12 of them were involved in this process, they, they would read those, those first uh, installments out loud, record themselves reading out loud, and then criticize them and suggest things. And then I would write the next installment, and then change the versions. So that was collective processing sort of process, or did it alter to an extent? It altered completely, and the book was written in that mode. Uh, then there was the catalog piece. Then there was a version in Spanish that I put together pieces of that with a book. Uh, at the same time, Christina McSweeney had been simultaneously translating pieces in English because she had also published the English version of the original, of the, not original, but of the installment uh, pieces in the catalog. And then I rewrote her manuscript, and then a fact checker came in and fact checked the whole novel, but like a deeply, like 40 page Excel of fact checking questions. Um, for example, there was a, I don't know, this, the narrator says at some point that he thinks that uh, Dostoevsky's father was probably a degenerate. And the fact checker checked, was, was Dostoevsky's father a degenerate? And then she actually came up with an answer, yes. It sounds like another chapter. It became a chapbook. Uh, but it's also like a version of the novel because it tells the whole no novel all over again through its facts. Mm -hmm. And I've been pushing for it to become a chapter, but maybe it's okay, it's, a, it's just, a, just a, something that circulates. But then there's translations of the book, like the translation into Chinese, yeah. where I've, uh, it's still not, not over and I've done it, but it's in the process of being done. And there my editors said that they want to publish, yes or yes, the fact check. Yeah. As hard book, so maybe that would be the first version. Yeah, where it is. Yeah. So I mean, there's no. I mean, for me, it's all all of it versions, right? It's not like race on something, but it's just stages of development process, as you were saying, the process, the process of translation, pretty visibly, messily displayed. Yeah. Uh, my German translator, you know, my German publisher, very angry one day in an email said, uh, she's fantastic. Uh, Auntie, Auntie Kunzmann. Oh, yeah. um, and I respect her and I, I, I fear her enormously. Um, and she, she, I sent her a book and I said, I said, I'm making a little changes, Auntie, I'm sorry. And then she wrote me very angry, saying, what, Valeria? What am I supposed to tell the press when I, that, that I publish work in progress? And this is your new collaboration with Sophie, does it have as many moving parts? Yeah, it it's, uh, no, it's actually, it's, it's, um, it's uh, selective, basically, that, that Sophie's doing of my last uh, couple of books, um, putting together uh, for Belladonna Press, um, which, uh, which is supposed to schedule to come out in, actually probably early week of May, whatever, we're still working on it. And uh, the title is Subsisters. And Subsisters is the title of one of, uh, uh, a section in my in my second book where I delved into the world of subtitling and, pro and translation in film and thought a lot about subtitling and what happens when you watch an original film in one language and you read another language at the bottom of it and what does that come to your 
to your understanding of language and collapse of translation possibly. And I was also obsessed with uh, 1940s, 1950s film noirs at that point with all the feminine, you know, the, the heroines and uh, I watched a lot of Douglas Sirk, uh, who's originally uh, Austrian. And so then I did sort of a, 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 an installation as poetry and I took, I took one woman and a film and I wrote a box, a shaped poem. Uh, which I called original version Ufau, and then on the other side I did uh, another box, original version of the subtitle, and I tried to use the same word material in both versions, but slightly derange it in the second version, as if you know you're listening but you can kind of missing something. So then it's like it's almost and uh, just opened up what what happens in this process, what kind of poetry happens in this process, and what happened, and I didn't know this before, is that the um, sort of it, something happened on the gender level. So the, the women of the films, who are sisters, right, subtitled subsisters, they were also like my sister and the narrative sisters, um, when they behave more according to the moral standards and codes of the film of the 50s in the one box and then in the, in the deranged language box, they were also liberated and they became strange and wild and violent and, uh, and, and all those kinds of things happened. So, so, um, that was a really fun project, and what uh, Sophie did, of course, how do you translate that? Mm -hmm. So I told her, try to translate the process, okay? R write one poem, or loosely base it on my poems, and then to do the same thing with deranging the language material, which she then did very closely. She managed to be close to what I did and also do her own things, mm -hmm. and then she added an English version. Her own part, basically. So that's when she's seen the second part of your process on the first. Yeah, part of the she does three. So she does original version, original version with subtitles, and then she does one that she calls English version, which is funny because the other ones are also English. <laughs> but but that is that's sort of her version. Like she wrote her own poem based on my poems, and they're all English, but they all inhabit different realms of breakdown of translation. Um, and I'm really, I'm we're trying to figure out right now how to visually represent it with the um, with the layout because in the in the German book, you know, it's nice, you have two pages, so that the translation process is yeah, it's only a third that you can take out or maybe a transparent sheet or something. Well, we can still work on that. Um, so that's an example where really the translation spills over and creates new poetry. And where the, the, the method of the constraint is sort of more important. It's like a meeting bacteria strain, yeah. just yeah. continually yeah. reproducing yeah. it on itself. Yeah. Um, any questions from anyone else at this point, or just like observations or translations? Yeah. Cecilia <laughs> Bikini um, was talking. Cecilia Bikini was talking last week uh, about the difficulty of uh, being able to tell lies from truth in this current political climate. And I was thinking about the difficulty of getting away from English as it's being used and abused. And I was thinking about children and blockage and trauma and these various questions that are coming up in both of your work. And I wondered if you just had any further um, comments on that. Can I answer it? Um, uh, yeah, you like push the button. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
especially uh, with what you said in regards to uh, um, English um, and how you use them. That's what you said, right? Okay. Not, not what I heard. <laughs> that you're going to use and abuse your whatever you said. Um, because, I mean, this is pretty obvious in, in a way, but because, because English is the dominant language of the internet, not, not only the, the, the dominant language of transactions in, in general, the kind of lingua franca, uh, even though not spoken by everyone on the planet, of course, but the, the, the language was spoken as a second language. Um, the, there's a lot of, there are, there are a lot of concepts, I find, being foreign, being Zigan, I don't know what is your experience, but that are, have now become a common currency in Spanish, but are imported, tra translate, carried over, translated without being rendered into uh, another language, not, not rendered into Spanish, but translated as carried over into to Spanish context and applied and that they misapplied because they are concepts that very much um, were gestated here. I, I think of concepts such as minority or white privilege or um, uh, all the language that circulate right now, uh, even mansplaining is a great one, but that's applicable everywhere. <laughs> but. Um, but I find that, that that language is often being greatly misused, uh, misapplied uh, outside the, the context in which it's uh, created. Not that, not, not, that not that we don't have a right to appropriate and and re-signify and use, but I think it's a very tricky area because um, often, I mean, often uh, people that don't necessarily um, find the term minority, for example, the most comprehensive way to define your identity, have that they begin to see themselves through the filter of a concept created uh, probably within the, the, the spheres of, of privilege, of academic research institutions. Of, um, and so even though in the US, Creating that kind of language has um, has allowed a conversation to begin and a lot of things to be called out and denounced. It also means that there's kind of no escape from that here, here, here in the U.S. I mean, you're a minority. That's what you are. That's it. And it's, there's no escape from that. But that's also kind of now permeated. Um, the discourse in, in another, another language, another context as well. Um, so it's it's a whole realm of like dominion, you know, trans, to trans, being sort of dominated um, through translation, through carrying over concepts and terms. I, I don't know how you see it in German. I mean, maybe I see this more as a Mexican word, or more near. And, uh, yeah, I think I mean the the the, the, um, the global sort of colonial, post-colonial setup, I think is very different when it comes to Europe and um, uh, European languages. I think we, I, I, we have a very different structure, especially maybe the German language is a very strong language and gets you know, translated into a lot. Uh, it's sort of a, a, a bigger language when compared to Czech or Slovakian or 
uh, Hungarian, and then there, there's other sort of, uh, power structures. Yeah, no, you're right. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Um, I'm thinking of uh, the concept of the minor language, often that, that I find really productive, um, uh, which Deleuze and Gautier developed with really Kafka. So a, a minor language as one that is an opposition or a struggle with uh, the majority language. Um, and uh, how to, and I often ask myself how to achieve writing in a minor language, especially with using English, because that's the language that I use to make my German funky messy, but it's still English, right? It's still the majority language, so how does that work? Am I, am I just continue to represent translation as a form of continuous power and measurement, whatever. But then they they defined writing the minor language also as as becoming a nomad in your own language and with the presence of other languages or not. And that's just a, sort of a, a way that I try to write and uh, I'd, uh, use translation as a tool to become a nomad in my own language in a way. Um, but I wanted to say something else in response to the language show use in a way we, I teach a translation class at Pratt Institute and we just had a session today and we talked about film and translation and um, we read an uh, essay by uh, a queer film critic, Ruby Rich, um, where she talked about the, um, you know, why it is and what cultural implication it has that, that people don't like to watch foreign language films or subtitled films. I mean, not here, not this audience maybe, but in general maybe the American audience. Um, and, and she raises the idea that maybe, you know, uh, a, a nation or maybe the people would be less hostile to other nations if they just heard other voices, more other voices, they just went to more language film to hear other voices. While this is a very simplistic sort of, you know, approach, when I read the word voice, it just, it just was so painful after yesterday's, uh, uh, you know, orange uh, uh, attack uh, on Congress, I mean the speech that Trump gave, which, 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 he, which he said that he was, um, that he asked Homeland Security to create voice victims of immigrant crimes engagement. Yeah, voice, called voice. And I just could not believe that, that this current language is not only using English, but then taking the concept of voice also. Like, you have the voice of it, it's, it's, it's so painful and, and just wants to you know, uh, scream, but on a, on a sort of mental level, this is, it feels so sickening when you just feel about voices that need to be represented, and um, so the work really needs to be continued. Yeah. Okay, well, I think um, I'm going to sort of ask you guys a final question, and then I think we're more or less up to time. Um, and this is, I'm sorry, it's, you know, it feels like asking you the answer to life, the universe, and everything. Um, but um, I'm wondering what you think literary translation's political power is and can be, and what literary translation should aim to achieve now. Um, you know, whether it can constitute a form of activism that actually affects things. Um, I mean, I know for myself, my own translation work. Um, part of that is contradicting the gender bias in translation, so we know that men and women do translate work in equal numbers, but 
the huge majority of texts that are translated into um, English are from male authored texts. So within my own work, it's sort of a refusal to translate men. Um, and from the Dutch, which is what I'm working from, um, sort of recovering this lost history of Dutch female modernists, often Jewish female modernists, um, that have been kind of paved over in European literary history. Um, so yeah, um, any sort of thoughts in that vein on your own work? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think this task, the task can be so manifold, and I think we touched upon so many already, like of being in the field, so to speak, and, and give voice to children, or uh, exactly like choosing who you translate and working on visibility, um, or using translation as a tool to, I mean, as enrichment, I see it as enrichment, but also as, as creating a certain poverty. It's also a concept I've, I've, from, to, which I took from the minor language essay, uh, to make your language poorer I, uh, by, by making it a nomad or by making it a sort of uh, a corrupt or destabled and all these things. So I think on the one hand, I want translation to be political to, to you know, to all the good things like enrichment, widen your own language, widen your culture, blah, 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 blah. At the same time, all of this, which is a work of stable, stabilization, should also be undermined yeah. by translation. And, and, and I think poetry, in a way, can do both. Um, I, I, I hope so, but um, yeah, it's, it's sort of this little bit of schizophrenic. Uh, it really puts me in mind of the Dong uh, Choi yes. statement that I read at the beginning, sort of underlining the inequity between the languages that she's translating between, as much as, you know, sort of uh, translation being this kind of humanist gesture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's our, uh, I mean, we're, we're no heroes, right? But we, it's, we're, we're just writers and translators. And it's more than, more than activism, I think it's just our duty um, to, to call out those things and to, to just work hard. I mean, I think really our only duty is to write as best as we can, to not add more shit. Um, <laughs> if we, in that process, can create something that, that has political impact, we'll be very lucky. I, I don't think that, you know, that any writer can or should aspire to, to create something that will make political change. Um, maybe translator's task is different. I, I'm speaking right now as a fiction writer. Um, because that puts you in a situation of intellectual vanity and arrogance that is bound to result in the shittiest novel possible, right? And a novel that's more a pamphlet, that's moralizing, that wants to teach you a lesson, and no. Um, so so that, that's, that's how I see the first part of what you're, what you're saying. On the other hand, I think that with this very, very sophisticated and smart focus that you put on, on translation as a process that we can almost visibly see uh, on page, perhaps in a book, um, you are also giving emphasis to the fact that uh, translation is ultimately a, a, an act of communication between two people, right? The writer, the translator, it's back and forth. And, um, and that is an example of, 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 of something almost miraculous, two people actually understanding each other, two people, two people working through the misunderstandings and working them over and creating something that is a conversation because the result is a conversation. 
And if in that process something that is that destabilizes the so-called target text in this case, translating from some language into English, meaning if if that English can become foreignized, made strange, and is completely unrelatable at first sight, fantastic. Then you've done then you've done something I think innovative. Um, I often really want to keep my students out of class. I don't because I guess in, in this in this America I would be fired. Um, because uh, students, I guess, where like there's a client related to it, you have to keep them really well. Um, and, but I go crazy every time they say that they like a text because it's so relatable. I can't, I can't really say literature should, should not be liked because, it's, because it speaks about you, because you can see yourself in the mirror of the text. It's the most idiotic way of understanding literature. Uh, if, if literature creates empathy with something, that, that something that's completely other, that's completely foreign, then it's then, then good literature. So I think my only kind of activist uh, intent is as a, as a teacher, more than as a writer, trying to teach texts that are completely unrelatable and, um, and, and then hopefully uh, getting students to engage with them. Um, that was a really good thought to end on. Um, so thank you all for coming and thank you Valeria and Oriana.